0: So if you've got questions, Joe Works and some others, they have got some pens that have index cards included on them uh, that they can pass around. So if you need some of those, raise your hand, and we'll be happy to bring you some of those. Now, we're going to start with some questions that have already been asked. Um, And you have the opportunity, if you've got one that you want to address, one in particular, you can write to them on the card. You may not know uh, these three men. But I'm going to give a brief introduction to these three men. I know all three of them uh, fairly well, and I'm really thankful that all three of them are here. I'm going to start with my, with my youngest, Brigham Eubanks, who is a local guy from Perth Amboy. He teaches uh, middle school Spanish, right? I do. And he's also taught some Spanish at Rutgers University. And so he is very much in the public school system and in the public universities and seeing where the children are at, as well as they have a, he and his wife Esther, they have a very young child of their own. And so we've got kind of a, uh, someone who's very green, but someone who wants to do good, but who sees all these different things. And so that's why we wanted Brigham to be a part of this particular thing. We have James Newman to my left. James did not grow up as a Christian. He's going to talk to us more about that tomorrow uh, from Chicago. And James now serves as an elder at the Embry Hills Congregation in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was a member uh, and where I first started preaching. And so James was not an elder at that time, but it was James was always going to be. It was how soon is James going to be. And James now is. Uh, they have four children, three sons, and a daughter, two of which are in college. Uh, and so he's kind of still in that middle age of parenting where you've raised them, but yet, you know, they're, they're adults. they adults. Kind got of to be in between. Then Marty Brodwell, who served as an elder at the Embry Hills Church, has four boys as well. All four are full-grown adults. They all have wives and children of their own. But yet Marty comes from a situation where he lost his wife a few years ago and is now a single father with grown children. Uh, and so we wanted to get Marty in for that and his expertise of serving as an elder and things that he has seen in that regard. And so that's where these three men are really coming from, That why we chose them. And I hope that makes sense uh, about that. Secondly, we got two different sessions this afternoon. The first session is really for parenting. And so one of the questions that was asked on the Facebook page, and those of you that are joining us on the live stream, we really appreciate you doing that, was someone asking us, could you expand on the differences between good parenting and helping the next generation? One of the things that we set up was that this first session was going to be on how do we raise our children to be godly with the second session being more towards helping children that aren't my biological children. But maybe that might be somebody at church or someone in my extended family or something along those lines. What can I do to help them? And so the question then follows up, how do those things commingle and also help the helpers? And we kind of read that and kind of understood that to be what kind of things would help me be able to help the next generation. Uh, And so they'll address some of those things, and so we'll begin with that question, and I'm just going to throw it out there, of what are some things that could help us, and maybe some biblical text when it comes to parenting, that will help us raise godly children. So I'm going to turn it to Brigham, because I believe that is going to be his question to begin with. Sure, thanks, Les.
1: Uh, I'd actually like to start with just an affirmation, first of all, that the idea of being able to raise godly families is is not only possible, but with God's help and by God's grace. We can do it. Uh, the enemy has certainly done a work in our world, and he's made it very difficult uh, to raise godly families. But we're not the first ones to experience these kinds of times. I was thinking, uh, in fact, of uh, Uh, A good father that I've seen in scripture uh, lately, been reading a lot the book of Jeremiah. Some of the worst times as far as uh, wickedness that just prevailed among the people and idolatry. And you might not, you might miss him at first glance, but a man named Shaphan had, as you read through the book of Jeremiah, uh, three sons, at least three sons and two grandsons who were supportive uh, of Jeremiah even though it was very unpopular and he was persecuted. How was he able to raise not just his own children, but have the influence on his grandchildren in those wicked times? And I think the answer was that he was a true friend of the Word of God. Uh, in the, in Shaphan himself was a scribe in the time of Josiah, and he was instrumental in bringing that found book of the law to King Josiah uh, and, and encouraged Josiah as he put those things into practice. So it really starts with the Word of God. And uh, that's why I really appreciate this first question. An hour is not long enough to talk about all the Bible has to say uh, about the topic of parenting. Uh, And perhaps these, these brothers could add on, but I would say the first book of the Bible that comes into my mind about parenting, because it is actually written from the perspective of a father to a son, is the book of Proverbs. This has wisdom, not only for... Uh, older children, certainly, a lot of the Book of Proverbs is appealing to their conscience, begging with them, instructing them. But also, there is instructions for parents to deal with toddlers or younger children, and to work with the characters as uh, the character of your children as they start to grow. Would either of you like to add, as far as biblical text?
0: You put, over the, you put it over the table. Sure
1: so
2: just to to add on to that about the importance of God's word um, but the children and we're going to talk about this I'm sure in all of our answers that that word has to be seen in these parents it is impossible for us to say follow God follow these words and our actions are not consistent our profession is different from our actions it sends a confusing message and so we can talk all day about these things, but our actions have to be consistent with that. And we're going to talk about some men, possibly, where it, because of their actions, it made their words and, and, and other things inactive, or they became inactive in trying to curb sin or trying to set a standard. So that is very important uh, with, to go along with these words we're trying to follow is that the, the character of us as parents has to be consistent with God's Word.
3: Yeah, I'll say Yeah, I'd like to introduce a couple of themes we want to follow, in. and I think Brigham's already introduced one, and that is we really are in a fallen and a hostile world. And so the Bible story about parenting, I think, begins in the book of Genesis, and it explains that there is a hostility brought into the world by sin. As parents, if we just see our role as parents is helping our children to somehow prosper in a good and natural world, we're missing the boat. There is a, a war here, and in various times the war is more dangerous, but perhaps we're coming at a time when it is more dangerous, as it was in Jeremiah's time. So I think a theme we need to have in mind is we're not almost as alarmed, uh, uh, every day as if we were actually in a literal warfare of some kind. You can imagine if we were under siege somehow from a physical enemy. We'd be protecting our children when they went out. We'd be worried about who they associated with. We'd have a lot of concern. But we saw our walk as a spiritual warfare, which is the way it's presented uh, in, in the Bible text. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, it's of the world. We know we're a God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Does that frighten us? If it does, is it reflected in the way we protect our children and so on? I'd like to address a little bit about the text for parenting. One thing to think about, especially with regard to both sessions, and that is how do you help the next generation? The Apostle Paul was a father to Timothy. Timothy didn't have a father that was a Christian, as best we know. But if you look, Paul calls him his son in the faith in two different epistles, in addition to the letters he wrote to Timothy himself. Look at that whole relationship. He grabbed that boy when he was probably 15, 16, 17 years old and said, you go with me on this challenging trip. And you know what? We may not make it back. And I'm not sure where we're going to go. And I was stoned and left for dead the last time I was through your hometown here and he took him and he challenged him he sent him on a special mission back to Thessalonica after they had been thrown out of town uh, he left him in Ephesus to, with a challenging job of refuting false teachers he built him up uh, to the church at Corinth, he said you support this man he complimented him to the church at Philippi said there's no one like him who only has his, uh, the other people's interest in mind all those things, and finally wrote those almost tearful letters uh, at the end of Paul's life uh, encouraging the Timothy to keep the faith that's the kind of relationship that fathers and sons should have but it may be these are spiritual fathers and spiritual sons but that's the kind of pattern I think we should follow study those as a way of looking at the way fathers live in addition to that of course the letters of Paul almost always get in the back half to the application part to how people should be helping each other children obey your parents in the Lord is one we think about from Ephesians but there are a lot of others that the younger, older women teach the younger women, those kinds of things. And so there are a lot of teaching, a practical teaching in the New Testament. I'm answering the first question, but I'm setting down the theme that we really are in a hostile world. And that's got to inform what we do. Second half of the theme is God knows best how to help us deal with that. So we have to accept His teachings, even if in the moment, it may not seem intuitively
0: obvious, it's going to work. But if He said to do it, we've got to, we've got to trust Him and show our faith. All right, so we're going to begin with the first question that, uh, that's been recorded. So, again, if you've got questions, there are places to write them down, pass them around Everton, or someone will come by Does and pick those up. Does everybody have cards? Oh, look at this. So if we can get some helpers on, the uh, you can just feed them to us at various times. That would be very helpful. Thank you. All right, so, gentlemen, here's your, here's your first question. It's, uh, it's kind of a compound question. What is a good model for discipline? Would you recommend corporal uh, punishment? And is it okay to shout at your children?
3: In that order? (laughs) Well, how you
0: want to answer? Yeah, I'll
3: answer. What's a good model for discipline? Um... uh, so the Proverbs, there's a passage in Proverbs. Proverbs twenty-two, verse six, is the one we usually quote that says, Train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old. You know that verse he'll not I think there's a better verse in that same chapter that's a model for discipline. And that is, is the rod of folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive the child. Now why is that such a good model? So think about this. I think a child in this natural, but remember, somewhat hostile world is going to be tempted by the natural man to be selfish, by the natural man to be angry, by the natural man to do things that you know the flesh tempts them to do. That's false. And what it's basically saying is those indications of rebellion, self-centeredness, and a lack of uh, self-discipline and a rejection of authority. Those are things kids do kind of naturally. you know what I'm talking about? I heard a fellow one time say that you shouldn't ever spank your children because that will teach them to hit their siblings. And he said, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. He said, they already know how to hit their siblings.
4: <laughs>
3: and there's some truth in that. They already know how to do that kind of thing. What they've even taught is not to do it. And so there, I think when you think about discipline, the model ought to be what is the folly that I'm driving out with this effort? What was the folly? Was it selfishness? Was it rebellion? Was it stubbornness? These are the, This is folly, you see. And so thinking you go to discipline your child, it's not because they embarrassed you in front of your friends. Right? Or it's not because they inconvenienced you because you had to clean up the milk for the third time. It's because they rebelled in some way, against a rule that they understood, right? Against, you know, a clear and knowing a clear consequence that you set out in advance. So when you look at a child and say, okay, here's an action. Do I discipline? That is, give them some suffering as a result. That's what Hebrews 12 says. No discipline seems for the moment pleasant, right? Am I doing this because they made me mad? Or the inconvenience of me? Or the embarrassed me in some way? Or am I doing this drive out something that's folly in their heart. Does that, is, Am I making sense? Y'all at least nod one way or the other. <laughs> I think we discipline our children for a lot of the wrong reasons, right? That, that is, we want to look this stern in front of our, our peer parents, you know, or something. Or maybe we just want them to be easy to manage. But I think that's not the spiritual reason. And so, when we go to discipline the child, the question is, Did they know the rule? And was it clear rebellion? Or not? And is this punishment going to help in the process of improving their soul? That's the reason to do it. Now, so this is going to shock you, but a child that's about one or one and a half has some folly. You know that? You're, you know what I mean? They. You've probably seen them knocking the cheerio off of their uh, high chair. And the first time they're just checking out the laws of gravity. That's all. They're just being a scientific experiment. But when you say no, and they know what no means, and they do it again, and then they look right at you. What's going on is folly. That's rebellion. That's stubbornness. And that's the thing. it's not the Cheerios on the floor that's the problem it's the the beginning signs of rebellion and there's another shocking statement that one and a half year old will not understand your lecture right? you can quote the Bible to them it'll go right over their heads but they might understand a little flick on the wrist that's lovingly administered followed by affection and assurance that they're worth everything in the world and they're better children than they could ever be And surrounded by love both before and after. And positive rewards that way outnumber the negatives that you have. And no temper from the parent. That's the very thing you don't want to teach them. No shouting. Everything's calm, but there's a certain, fairly close to the event consequence for that action. So is it folly? And then am I calm and am I doing this for their best interest? So I'm going to ask y'all to agree with me or not, but I'm going to take the position that the question would be, do you ever shout at a child? I'll tell you what, if you have anger issues, you need to fix those because that will be inherited by the child. And if you're showing that anger to them, they are learning from you how to do that. And that's terrible. If you can try to think of some some circumstance where anger might be accomplishing a positive spiritual purpose. If you think of that, what is it? Anger is accomplishing a positive spiritual purpose. Maybe it might be justified. But if we're just teaching our children that when we get angry, that's the only time we really mean anything. We're teaching them the wrong habits. We're teaching them folly, as a matter of fact. Uh,
2: we can talk later about this. You guys can I'm talking about this so, you agree with that? I agree with it, but I also say that I failed miserably with that. Uh, the shouting, the understanding about the discipline, maybe in anger. Uh, why did you? Why did I fail miserably in there? A lot of it is because I didn't know. Uh, the natural response to uh, maybe rebellion is either force or, or something else. So you don't have the training or this information like where you're here. The, the importance of why parents, one of the reasons for parents here is to pass on good information. So when the kids grow up, they can emulate that information. Anybody here that does computer programming, garbage in, garbage out? When there's garbage in, that's what you're going to produce. So when you didn't have it yourself, you can't, or if whatever you saw, you unfortunately, you're just going to mimic it. And you're doing so that's the way your parents disciplined. My mom was a very she was a disciplinary uh, person, and we'll talk about a little bit more about that tomorrow. But that's what I remembered and that's what I knew when I had children, I I needed to be a disciplinary. Later on, and it was shortly after I became a Christian, um, that I started having children, I began to learn these things that Marty was talking about. But the good thing is, it's, 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 it's not too late for you um, to learn these things and to make the kind of correction, and to be consistent in other things about, for the kids, do they know that the thing is wrong? Now, I know you get it a little bit older, but do you know, and to be consistent with both parents. They should be consistent about your discipline, and the reason why, because it'll confuse the child if you're not consistent. Um, timeouts... I don't know if anybody that's part of that The timeouts is for me It's not for the children Because I'm angry And I need to walk away So I can come back and discipline properly Because I, I have unfortunately Disciplined it in anger And that was not good It was not pleasing to God So timeouts are good Not for the children it's for me, because if we have set the standard of whatever the rebellion, whatever the rule is, and they broke it, eight, three, and they broke it, they need to be punished for whatever it
0: is. So wow. So will hey, so you. Got something? Yeah. We got something. We got to keep the answers shorter I, I because the questions are rolling in. Good. 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 That's a great thing.
1: That's a very big topic. Uh, very important. As far as the shouting goes, I want to share something. fact, I got the training as a teacher the other day, a man conducted an interview with uh, 9,000 middle school students and asked them, what's the number one way uh, in which you want your teachers to respect you? Respect is a big word in schools, right? You know what the number one answer was? Don't shout. Don't shout at me. Um, I had a teacher next door. Ooh! Yesterday he went off on the kid. <laughs> Teacher down the hall called me to make sure everything was all right. <laughs> now, why was that man shouting? It was it was uh, because the, the kid had made him look foolish. And he didn't like it. He wasn't he wasn't talking that way out of love. Uh, we really need to examine our goals. So he's gonna ha- he's gonna end up with a classroom full of kids that obey his rules. But has he really taught the kids any kind of character? No, they're just not going to act out because they don't want him to dress them down, you know? So he hasn't really taught them any kind of character, any kind of way to behave. I think the same goes for us as parents. That if we think that we... Some, some people in society think that applying a spanking or using a rod is, is some kind of abuse. I'll tell you that man yesterday abused the kids in the classroom. He didn't need the use of a rod. Certainly... If we, if we don't use the rod biblically, we can be abusive, but it is so much better to use the God-given tool for discipline uh, instead of using man-made tools or, or tools that, that some pop psychologist has come up with. The, the, the rod is the God-given tool. If we apply it uh, correctly, uh, then that is the way God, uh, that uh, we're really going to train up kids.
0: Awesome. So these two questions go together should I stick my kids in private schools? And then there was another question about homeschool. Should I homeschool my children? So should I stick my kids in private school or homeschool, and should I try to shield them from worldly influences in that way?
1: I'll go ahead and start, since I heard the keyword school. That's uh, (laughs) probably from me. Uh, Although I'm sure there will be more to add on to this if you'd like, Uh, I I, I have thought recently My development about school thinking, because I have to, we have to make a decision, Esther and I, about Eden uh, in the future, about uh, what kind of schooling she'll get. Right now, she's learning her games and stuff, so it's a lot easier. Uh, But, first of all, you think in terms of the worldly influences of her peers. Then I started to think, you know, academically, there's a lot of wasted time in school. Uh, As a teacher, I especially noticed that, so I could probably teach her better at home. But... Throughout the years, I've noticed that maybe the biggest influence I'm worried about in school is my colleagues. <laughs> Not necessarily godly people uh, that are that are teaching our kids. Uh, that's something to, to take into account as well. There are just... Satan's lies are constantly being inculcated in schools. Lies like... Um, There's no absolute truth. Everything is relative. Lies like... And this is kind of ironic, too, because then... Trust in scientists, absolutely, is another message. Kind of contradictory there. A scientist says something, you got to believe it. Last year it came out, uh, we discovered some planets. They may have water. Therefore, there's probably life on them. That was ridiculous to hear something like that. And yet people swallow it up, and the kids just swallow it up. You know, tolerance uh, is, a, is a key word for... You can never tell anybody they're wrong, that's what gets promoted uh, in, in school nowadays. Uh, so many lies from Satan, they come from different different, uh, different sides, not just the peers, but also the teachers. And the point I'm trying to make is not, I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to promote private or homeschool, uh, that's not even a decision that uh, me and Esther have made in our own minds. Uh, but mostly what I'm trying to say is, is awareness and alertness as a parent, knowing the kinds of things that your kid is going to hear at school and being willing to combat those with Scripture and letting them know what God says about it. It's not always sounding smarter than their teachers or their professors or the scientists, but it's setting up God's teaching and His standard. Let me pass that on as well. I just have a quick response
3: yeah so we had uh, we actually had all three we had some of our boys in public school some in private and we did homeschooling for a little while in the middle school age Uh, i think there are three players involved that have to be thought about number one uh, what's the child's nature i think if they don't have a kind of a self-discipline and things that are required to do their work at home it might be difficult for them it could be also that they have a strong sense of faith and self-identity and confidence that they're resilient enough to be able to be in a public school environment. Second is, the public school environment, the school environment, may not be as bad in some situations as it is in others. We lived in a fairly small community. Uh, Mary could be down at the school almost any time. She worked at the nurse's station and in the office at various times. So she kept her eye on all kinds of things. So it could be the school setting is going to be very different from one situation to another. And the third is the parents and their qualifications and their discipline. I think I've seen a case or two where in protecting the child, the parent really didn't have the discipline or the know-how to do the kind of training at home. So my question is, why do you want to do it? And the answer is to protect them and give them the best environment spiritually. One other quick warning, quick warning, and that is I certainly hope this would never become a divisive issue in a congregation. Where some people are so determined that you need to do one or the other that they would have a condemning attitude toward others, it's clearly a matter of judgment uh, in in the parents, and a tough question really, right? and certainly something to discuss, but never should be a source of division or judgment of others. I think in the current version.
0: So we're going to throw a question to James here. James sent his children to public school, and so the question for you, James, is. Uh, what do you do if your child is bullied at school? So,
2: <clears throat> when I looked at that question, I didn't know what the person meant uh, or the age of the child, but you, you know you always use something like this as a teaching opportunity. Anything that happens, you have to use it in the in the look it through the prism of the scripture, the prism of how this world is being broken and, and those things like that, and then react in the way that God would want us to react. And so, There was an instance with uh, my son at the time, he was a sophomore in high school, and it kind of goes with what the brother was saying about tolerance. Uh, He was eating lunch with some kids that they always eat, and they're sharing their opinions about things that are in the world. And of course, he's looking through the prism of his worldview, and that's through the prism of the scriptures and how God views things. And there was a particular person that did not like his answers in a lot of these things. And because of that, um, it started off with small things like breaking pencils, flicking the glasses, and those things like that. And then it came down to actually um, striking him one time um, when it was talking about whether uh, things about homosexuality or some other things like that. Did they just go... Now the shocking thing about all this is that it's a girl, not a not a male. It was a young lady, and so um, he came and, and told me about this. And the things that um, you were able to point to in the scripture, Marty and I was just looking at a, a few things to uh, when someone when your child comes to you and you know, the things to. Give him confidence that you are doing exactly what you're supposed to do. And one of the things I think it was uh, John 15:8. Jesus talked about they hated me, and they're going to hate you also. About this world is not our friend, and we're in this warfare. And if you're following God and the, the mindset that you have, these are these are enemies, and they may not realize it, but they're playing for the wrong they're playing for the wrong team. They're playing they're on the enemy's team. And so it's an opportunity to teach. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. They hated Jesus, and if you follow him, they'll hate you also. But it's also an opportunity to show that let God deal with this, that you do not take vengeance upon yourself. Now, of course, I used the the system that's in place in school. It went out there and, and, and talked to the, the appropriate people, and they handled it. There hasn't been any more issues about this. But the thing uh, from, at least from that age, that age where there is a, a worldview conflict, you have to, uh, you, you encourage them by using the scripture that this is exactly what the world, what the word said would happen and is going to happen and it's probably going to most likely get worse as we see this, the battle lines getting drawn uh, particularly, I mean there are things that you and I, bullying just doesn't start with children they're bullying as far as adults with, the way, with our worldview. And we just have to be prepared to fight as, as Jesus told us to fight. And again, that's about teaching the children the Scriptures and then mimicking those things that we're talking about so that they can see that you're in this fight also and that you're applying those same principles. So if I, someone says something to me, they don't see me flying off the handle about it, that I use the same principles and address it small children the same way. These are principles. All the things that happen, and it was unfortunate when things happen, you use everything for a teaching moment, every single thing, and see how God's words apply in all the aspects of our lives.
4: All
0: right. So here we go. How did you deal with your children when peer pressures and worldly desires started to creep up in their lives? Keep it relatively brief. we got several of them over here, but a few things would be very helpful.
1: Mine would be very brief. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Say that again.
0: So how did you deal with your children when peer pressures and worldly desires started to creep up in their lives? Hmm. You can tell it's a tough question, right? <laughs> you to Give me time to take the yeah. right answer. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So, how do you know that? It seems like the first thing that comes to my mind is if you don't have an open channel mm-hmm. to what your kids are doing and thinking and facing, that it would be difficult to know when it is the first time or you know initially. Um, I guess I'm, so I'm kind of making a different point, but I think that if, you're, if you don't have the uh, communication channels open to see that and know that I think that maybe you're missing an opportunity to sense that pressure when it first begins and I can only think of some things that would kill that communication one of the things that I think is a communication killer would be if you're inconsistent one day you fly off the handle and the next day you're loving and the child doesn't know which to expect and that, that's a frightening world uh, is to be uh, and I think, you know temp, control of temper and other things would be that way I think another thing would be to create situations that are low pressure where you're not actually in a disciplined moment. You're actually just doing things that have another purpose, but they're, they're actually enhancing the opportunity to communicate where the child can say, you know, I have a friend and this is happening to them or something like that. You know, begin to introduce this challenge in some way. I don't think I think if you have a strained relationship, which is created I think by temper or inconsistency or lack of time with the child or other things, uh, about uh, continual criticism I think is another. That's another thing. It will kill the communication. I'm now I'm afraid to talk to you about anything because every time I talk, all I get is a criticism. I probably that's probably one of my many faults, and that was just. And you know it's well intentioned, but you just want to make sure everything's perfect, so you end up criticizing everything so a lot of positive so anyway, creating the environment where you can begin to see that then I think you have the opportunity to begin to address it. sometimes you might want to address it as by way of example in other words i'm not want to talk about you, but here's a situation. maybe you see that in a child at church or a friend that you know about, or maybe something on the news or something like that is an opportunity to, to begin kind of almost as a a Nathan and David story, you know, where it's not about you, but, you know, what would you do? So you can begin to introduce that, uh, that
4: teaching. Yeah.
1: Sure, I'll add to that, although it's not going to come from my child's experience. Uh, but as far as uh, peer pressure and uh, trying to impress your friends, middle school is, is that age. In fact, uh, as far as drama goes, 7th grade girls are at the top of the list. <laughs> um, let me tell
4: you.
3: I didn't have to deal with that. One
1: thing I was thinking about that passage of Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. Again, Proverbs as... Uh, it's a father to, to his son. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then two verses later uh, in verse 10 begins talking about this theme of peer pressure. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And the whole uh, idea of camaraderie is very important in this text as they say come with us, let us, let us, let us. You see that several times. We shall, we shall, we shall. This idea of, of being involved in a group. And uh, I think that's really what the idea behind peer pressure is, is that they don't want to be different. They want to be part of the group. They want to have that sense of camaraderie. Uh, And a key to that, of course, is making the camaraderie in the home, uh, of course, uh, very, very powerful. But uh, the main thing that we read here in verse 7 to me is the fear of the Lord. Who are we really fearing? Um, What's behind that behavior in the kids? is sometimes a fear of other people more than the fear of God. The fear of what will this person say, what will this person think, how will I look in front of people around me more than what will God think of my behavior. So uh, as far as the instruction, as far as the teaching opportunities, I think the teaching opportunity to, to learn the fear of the Lord is there in those occasions.
0: All right, so this card is getting two for the price of one. So when do you let... Go and we're moving on to kind of older children, adult uh, children in this little section here. When do you let go of trying to guide children who once served God but now question their own faith in God? Follow up to that: How do godly parents move on from rebellious adult children? Mm. Do you want me to repeat the question?
4: <laughs> When
0: do you let go of trying to guide children who once served God, but now question their own faith in God? Followed up with, how do godly parents move on from rebellious adult children?
1: I'll let let you answer uh, more, but the first part of the question, and I I don't know if the question even meant this, but I think uh, the first answer is, is never let go. Um... Jeremiah 31, verse 3, God God loved the people with an everlasting love. Uh, now, does that mean that some, some you, you don't go to the extreme of discipline? I think even in the church, in the church family, uh, in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus talked about how to deal with, with extreme, that kind of extreme rebellion, where there's just no listening. Uh, and I think some of those same principles can apply to the family as well. But I don't think you ever let go of a hope and let go of... of being willing to receive even as the, the father in the story of the prodigal son was? Well, you took mine. My... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't have anything to yeah, the story. But
2: the thing with the, prodigals, uh, the prodigal son, the father was waiting for him to come back. The father had done everything he could possibly do. And the thing that I always love about this story is that the son remembered his father's house. And words. And words. So, again, that consistent, that life that he had with the with the father in that house, he lived in such, the father demonstrated his love and, and his care and his consistent character that even though he rebelled and took things and went off in there, when he got down to where he was, he remembered the love of his father. He remembered his character and his being consistent. Not someone like, that's an ogre. All. Now, they may think you're an ogre, and we'll talk about that because my kids thought I was an ogre. So, uh, but knowing the character of his father, and he's like, he came back to, and the father was waiting there. And that, that, that image of a father there waiting, probably going out every day looking and seeing if my son's coming back. And that's the, of course, that's the image we understand. That's, that's God looking at us, wanting us to come back. And so I think that's the part. So you, you can't entertain them in their sin. You, you've told them, this is I can't go with you where you're going. I'm gonna stay with God. And that's that's another thing that's hard for parents to say, I'm gonna always be with you and agree with you when we're agreeing with God. If you walk away, I can't go with you, son or daughter. I can't go with you. I love you, but I we I can't go with you there. And that has to that you you can never entertain sin or disobedience with your children. It sends the wrong message. And you say you can always come back home to God and always come back home to me, but you cannot entertain I can't us enable you. To, or enable you in that, in that case.
3: So, yeah. so. so I would just say that it, it finally dawned on me a few years ago that I think I've seen, just like you've seen children whose lives are affected by their parents in a negative way, they, they just live out what they've seen in their parents and it damages them spiritually that the reverse has happened quite often. And that is, as a child has denied the faith and gone off, the parent is so drawn by that affection. It is natural, of course, that they're drawn away from the Lord by their children. Have you seen that? Have you seen that where you begin to compromise? And I think James has laid out some very nice guidelines. You would never have fellowship with that evil. You just can't do that. The father didn't go down and live with the son, in the prodigal son in his, you know, his immorality. He didn't go out even searching for him, but he was ready. There's always a way home, but it's a way home, not a way somewhere else. And that's the, I think there's a great danger. And, and it's interesting to me that Jesus says there's nobody has left. And then he gives a list of family relationships and he lists children, right? That nobody has left father or mother and he lists sons. You have to sometimes leave the family to be faithful to him. And he'll replace them with great blessings, but that's a challenge.
0: All right, so here's here's a couple more, and then we'll have some follow-ups probably uh, that come in. One of the questions is, what are some special challenges of a single parent?
3: Okay, I'll clarify. Let me just break the question. <laughs> so, really, I think there may be four questions. Yet.
4: <laughs>
3: uh, four different questions and the reason is this I think our society has made uh, single parenting the norm and they've made single moms heroes in many cases and, and then often that's true but I think there are four different situations and they're so different with regard to the effect on children number one is the mother is immoral Because of her fornication, a child is born without the sufficient support of the godly family. And the answer there is the mom needs to repent and change her life and put aside with a sense of shame what she has done in her life. That's the only way I think the child will begin to see the life they need to live. A second would be where mom is single because of divorce. And that could be betrayal on the part of her mate. That's a different situation, but again, a very dangerous one for the child to see as the example, to feel rejected by the father who's abandoned the mother, or the mother who's abandoned the father, either one, right? Right, and then I think there's a... So those are two different cases, I think, where the mother's maybe responsible. It could be that the father... And the the fourth case would be, of course, the case of uh, death. Somehow we've equated widowhood with the immorality at single motherhood, right? They're not the same. Or divorce. You know, a father who has died as a faithful man gets greater in the eyes of the children after he's died. I'm telling you this as a man who's lost his wife. I will tell you, my wife has gotten more precious in my eyes since she's died. Y'all know this. It's true, right? someone dies and you don't ever you accept criticism about them, they become greater as time goes by. You remember the good things. And when I tell my kids and now my grandkids about Mary... I'm going to tell them wonderful things, and they get going to get, she's going to get better in their eyes. But if I think if my wife had betrayed me and left me, I would not be acting that way. She might get worse in my eyes over time as that pain sinks in and I see the effects on the life. And so you all see the difference. So thinking of single mothers as just kind of one class of people, I think that's not the same. And I'm going to get James to kind of take over here because you have the life experience better. Uh, yeah, so there are four different cases, right? There's a single mother who's immoral. There's a divorced a woman who left her husband. There's a husband who betrayed his wife. and Then there's the widow. And I think those are all different cases. And each one will have its unique challenges for the child uh, to, to have the leadership they need. Uh,
2: the question was, what was the challenge of a yeah. single mother? <clears throat> so my parents divorced... Uh, I think it was about fourth grade, maybe fifth grade, but my, my dad wasn't around. I mean, he was around, but he came in late and said, we, we didn't have a relationship. That's probably a better way to, to explain even, even, before bro- even before the divorce. So her bringing, bringing me up, you, you probably, while you're in the middle of it, you don't see really the deficiency in that setup until you get older. And maybe leave home and see the things that you miss, the things that, and see the struggles that she had trying to raise three children by herself. Now, again, the, the the society will say, well, that's, you know, she raised three kids by herself, she should be applauded. Well, well, yes, you know, applauded for that. But the children, God has designed children in such a way that they need both male and female. Anytime we try to take the shortcut that the world has offered or that Satan has offered, you're not going to produce what God wants to be, uh, to be produced. You're, it's a counterfeit. It's a lie. And it, the children will have some deficiencies in that. I mean, you say, well, you know, you're not in jail. You're not doing these things. But I struggled a lot with not having those things that both a mother and a father. She can't be both. She's, God didn't equip her. To, to, to fulfill both roles. She can be just absolutely dynamic and keeping you out of jail and all these other things, but she was not designed for that role. And we forced upon her things that she should not have had to carry by herself. And so it is a difficult thing that we see the result of it in these children, in our children in this world, things that we call common and okay. We, when we see these children... I mean, it's not a statistical fact, particularly when we're thinking about jails, that on Mother's Day, all these cards come out of the jail. They go to Mother's. On Father's Day, tumbleweeds. Nobody's sending letters out. No one's sending cards out. And so we have, from an incarceration standpoint, where fathers are the lacking of it and what it does to our society and individuals and the struggles that the children are going to have to deal with and their identities and these other things because of that. A lot of struggles. And I don't know if one of the questions later on that we're going to talk about is what a single mother can do, particularly with the church's help, with individuals, how to help her compensate for what's lacking. And hopefully we'll we'll get a little bit more on that. But it is it is a special challenge. And of course, while children are going through, they don't realize it because this is all they know until they grow up and see the deficiencies in their own self about these things. And then, of course, with the Lord's help, He can help you overcome those deficiencies because you, with the Lord, provides as Marty said, He He will provide fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers for you if you don't have those naturally. And I'm going to talk a little bit tomorrow as I pass this on about this man here. And we'll talk about how God replaced a father that I didn't have.
1: Brigham, you, you have an answer? Can I just mention as well, uh, to people that haven't gotten to a place in their life where they've committed those kinds of errors, I hope we're, we're listening and taking warning and, and making sure that we do what we need to do uh, to avoid those things. I think if you see the problems that are caused in other people's lives, you really got to work hard to avoid them. Uh, you know, if you see what happens when a father... Uh, Leaves the family, you make sure you work hard to to be unified with your family so that you don't do that. Uh, If you see that committing fornication um, leads to to, to single motherhood or the the father's not taking responsibility for the life that he's he's been involved with, avoid it. Avoid
0: it. Alright, so here's the final question of the session. We got basically two minutes here. Alright? It's a follow up to the discipline question. How do you show affection, care for the child after discipline? How long after? If no lecture is understood, what do you recommend you do to give the child assurance? And then a follow-up to that, what do you What do you recommend young-to-be parents to study slash do before reaching that stage? So maybe there are two questions there, I think, before the parenting stages.
1: Read the last part again, please. The
0: the last part was, what do you recommend young-to-be parents to study slash do before reaching that stage?
1: Well, I I will mention something that uh, this was not pleasant at the time, but it's serving as an example. My child, Eden, was uh, whining as we pulled up here, Uh, and she actually told her mother no. Uh, that's not something that we allow her to do. So Esther did the great thing. She sits in the back there with Eden. And um, she did give her uh, a spanking. But what happened afterwards? Uh, that's very important. We, with with Eden, strive to make sure that the reconciliation is complete afterwards so that she's not continuing to struggle. Because maybe then we didn't apply the spanking well enough. Uh, she's not continuing to struggle. She's, she's now submitted. And she's willing to say, I'm sorry to mom, and she's willing to give a hug and say, I love you. That's ideal. It happened in this case. Uh, sometimes the, the process takes longer. Um, but uh, I, just, I felt like that was addressed in the question. I know I didn't answer it completely, and maybe some of these other brothers could, but I feel like the, the coming together afterwards is the whole point of the discipline. We don't want to just smack them and, and both of us are walking away angry. No, that's that's uh, not not, uh, not
4: godly
3: discipline. I really like James' comment about the purposes of time out. I think that's really the thing. So here's maybe three points. Number one, when there's a discipline incident, I think there should be a precursor which is a calm expression of the purpose of that. Now, if they're real young, that's a little bit hard, but usually... If they're old enough to know the rule, you can say, we have the rule, and you can't do that. And so it's, it's a calm, it's, it should be an expression of love in some way, some level. And then there's a di- there's the time-out period, right? The, am I calm? And it really should never be angry, because I think you are teaching revenge and, and, uh, and temper if all you do, if you're angry at the point where you administer some painful. And no chastening seems for the moment pleasant. That's Hebrews chapter 12. But then after that, there's this affirmation. And I think what Brigham just described is perfect. For a small child, they know what a hug means. And they know what you know calm words mean, even if they don't understand the language. For a child that's somewhat older, though, you can begin to say, you know, you know you're way better than this. And you begin to affirm their character and their worth in your eyes and in God's eyes. And so every time you're actually coming back by saying, yes, this is over, number one. Forgiven, number two, and you are better and you will be much better for this, number three. And so they feel that and they can, you can affirm that physically as well as with the words that you say. One other little point, and that is wouldn't it be wonderful if for every negative discipline event there's a positive reinforcement or two or three or four or five? And maybe the ratio is like five to one of reinforcement for the positive. So, that one incident where the child was unselfish, or did something sacrificial, or did say thank you, or did say yes to mommy on a difficult thing, and they get overwhelmed with positive praise, and that's not forgotten quickly, that's remembered forever somehow. So, you know, I guess the rest of the story that envelops the whole negative experience of this thing with the positive, uh, you know, affirmation of affection and worth and value and so on. All right. Thank you very much.
4: Uh, We went a little long, but that's okay because we started a little late. I don't think anyone is going to
0: be terribly upset about that. But we will start the next section at 5.10. At 10 after 5, we will start back. There are restrooms down the stairs all the way to the back of the building. There's also one all the way here in the back of the upstairs auditorium as well and water right inside of Don't go, Eddie says don't go there, there are wires across, you might mess up his internet, uh, or trip and fall and break your neck. And that would be on all fronts. Alright, so uh, we'll reconvene at uh, 10 after 5. Awesome, thank you very much.